You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Our researchers have a lot of interpersonal relationship with various researchers across the field. That's Richard Hummel. He's manager of the ACERT Threat Intelligence Team at Arbor Networks, the security division of NetScout. The research we're discussing today is titled, LOJAC Becomes a Double Agent. This particular one came as a tip to one of those researchers. Initially, when we received it, it was, hey, here's a malicious binary. There's something you know off about it. We didn't really have a whole lot to go on. Um, so that's kind of what kicked off our research into this particular finding. Describe to me uh, what's going on with LoJack. I mean, I remember uh, years ago, I think LoJack started out as a brand that... Uh, would protect your cars from being stolen, and then somewhere over the years, uh, that brand pivoted and, and became known for protecting computers. Kind of what led us to the whole LoJack research, if you will, back in 2014 was a Black Hat presentation um, that some researchers did on what was then known as CompuTrace. Uh, since then, it's been purchased, and it's been rebranded to be LoJack, which essentially installs an agent on your system at the firmware level that allows you to track your laptop should it ever be stolen. 
Uh, so that's kind of where the software is that we're dealing with. Uh, the actual software itself, to our knowledge, has not been modified as far as functionality. The code remains the same. If you compare a legitimate LoJack sample with uh, one of the ones using a Hijack C2, they're identical, 100% function matching across the board. Hmm. Um, so the, the problem isn't stemming from Absolute or LoJack software itself. Uh, essentially, the attackers are taking that copy of the software and simply replacing the C2 in it with one of their own. I see. Well, take us through how LoJack works. How does it maintain its persistence on a machine? Uh, sure. So there's an agent. Uh, the researchers back in 2014 uh, dubbed this small agent. But basically what it does is the agent itself embeds itself in a BIOS or UEFI firmware. And from there, whenever the system is rebooted, it embeds code into something called autocheck.exe. Um, and that basically is what's going to mean its persistence on the machine itself. So anytime you were to swap a drive out, if you rebooted the system, or even if you reformatted, it's going to persist because it's actually at the firmware level rather than a software level. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's a unique uh, method of maintaining persistence. And it, it's great for LoJack itself, right? Because if somebody grabs your computer and steals it, um, and they swap out a drive so they can actually use it, you're still able to then locate your laptop. Uh, so it's a really, it's a cool persistence mechanism. And it's really unfortunate that attackers have used that and kind of leveraged that for their own purposes. And so the legitimate functionality of, uh, of, the, of a LoJack install, what sorts of uh, things does it allow you to do? So that's, that's one of the things that makes it appealing to an attacker, right, is LoJack itself allows you to execute arbitrary code. Uh, it comes with it natively. Uh, and because it's running at the firmware level, it also has system permissions. So essentially, it provides a backdoor into an effective machine, one running a LoJack sample that has this malicious C2. Uh, and an attacker can use that access to essentially do what they want. If they have additional malware or payloads that they want to distribute, uh, it's as trivial as sending that command via their C2 back to the agent installed. Uh, and then they can then install additional malware, whatever that may be. Describe to us what exactly have the bad guys modified here to, to have it look at their own command and control servers? There is a... Uh, configuration within LoJack itself that has the C2 pointing to legitimate LoJack command and control servers, right? This is pretty typical. If you need to find your laptop, you have to have a way to communicate it with it, right? So it has to have some sort of callback to LoJack itself so that they can then locate your machine. Hmm. The attackers have basically swapped out that C2 check-in with one of their own. And it's, it's fairly trivial. It's only encrypted with a single byte XOR key. Um, that is actually hard-coded into the binary itself. Uh, and the attackers, when they replace the C2, they also will pad any extra bytes with that XOR key. So it's relatively simple for us to go in and strip out those C2, but that's literally the only change that they've made uh, to our knowledge of the software itself. So to the person who has this running, it looks like a perfectly normally functioning copy of LoJack doing all the things it's supposed to be doing. Correct. And from what we've seen, uh, we have one live C2, um, that was live as of yesterday. When it checks into that malicious C2, it actually responds as if it is a LoJack server. So the communication protocol looks very similar. In terms of attribution, uh, who are we? Uh, who, who do we think is up to this? I think we have a moderate confidence on it right now because all of the attribution that we have stems from infrastructure. There's there's no code to go on. There's no like tick marks or anything like that where we can say definitively that. This has been seen in other malware samples from X group, right? Um, so what we're looking at is the actual C2s themselves. 
Um, and some research over the past several months and past year points some of those C2 to fancy bear or APT28. Um, I think they're also known as pond storm. Several of those C2s were actually seen in some phishing campaigns um, that Jigsaw Security had reported on uh, in the past. Um, so that leads us to believe that the operation might be related to APT28 or Fancy Bear. The way that they're going at this makes it uh, pretty effective at avoiding antivirus detection. Correct. Yeah. When we first started looking at this, uh, a lot of the different AV scanners had maybe two of 50 plus identifications for it. And of those, they listed it as a risk tool or something that, hey, this could potentially cause harm to your system, but it wasn't listed as outright malicious or malware itself, um, which is pretty common, right? I mean, you're installing software that's just planting something in your firmware. Uh, so sure, sure, it should be risky, uh, but it didn't label it as malware. And that's because to the antivirus scanner, it looked legitimate, right? It looked just like a LoJack sample. Um, and the C2s themselves can be swapped out in any given sample. So it's kind of hard to stay ahead of that game and say, oh, let's go ahead and blacklist all of these C2 because we don't know them until we've analyzed the sample. Um, so yeah, so it's very effective at evading antivirus because they're basically using legitimate software that just checks in somewhere else. Now, do you have any sense for how people are getting this altered version of LoJack on their machines? We don't. We've speculated. We have some theories. Um, but we were just looking at APT28 itself. What are their TTPs and tactics? Um, and in the past, they've used a lot of phishing to distribute their payloads. Mm. Um, so we looked at some of the more recent stuff uh, that Jigsaw Security reported on. Um, they have several documents there with macro droppers. And we ran some of those, and we looked to see, do any of those drop LoJack? And we haven't been able to confirm that. Um, so right now, we don't know how they're getting on systems, or even if they are. Um, it could be that we found these samples, or we were tipped off to these samples, and the attackers are in testing mode. So we don't have any confirmation of these actually impacting users in the wild. Um, and we have been working with Absolute. Um, and so they're, they're very aware of this. And so as things develop, we'll continue to work with them and share our findings back and forth. So in terms of folks protecting themselves against this, what are your recommendations? So obviously the IOCs that we list here in the report are very good. Um, make sure that your systems are blocking those domains. If you have the hashes that we've shared, uh, clearly those are going to be representative of these malicious samples. Um, now, it's not going to identify all of them for sure. It's just going to identify the five that we have listed in the blog. Um, but honestly, that, uh, to our knowledge right now, that's the best way that you can block this is by making sure those domains are blacklisted um, and that your systems cannot communicate with those. Um, we do push all of this stuff to our systems. Um, so we are detecting if and when we see any of this logic activity, we can get alerted on those. Uh, and then it can enable our research to go further and look at those and strip out those CTUs and then again feed those back into our process. But that seems to be the best way at this point to block the activity. What's your take on on the, how this contributes to, I, I suppose, a certain level of uncertainty? You know, it's a, I, I suppose a, a who watches the watchman kind of thing. You know, we, we install these systems uh, on our computers to help protect us, but along with that comes a certain level of trust that the information they're going to be sending back to their own servers is is going to be uh, well protected, encrypted, and, and so on. Uh, absolutely. And uh, as far as we know, there's there's nothing wrong with that process itself. From what we can tell, uh, and, and obviously we're not sitting at the host environment, so we don't know if an attacker is getting in directly and tampering with LoJack samples that are already installed on systems. We don't know that. Um, all we've been able to glean is these samples in the wild, um, that have been tampered with. 
So that communication protocol between a host with installed LoJack and actual LoJack servers, as far as we know, that's not been compromised. And I, I guess I'm probably not the best person to speak to that. That'd be something that Absolute and their security engineers would be best uh, postured to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as we can tell, the problem stems from an attacker getting a hold of a sample and cracking it, if you will. Um, similar to what a lot of these different gamers do. They, they grab a, a copy of a game, they crack it, and they fix it so that the key can run without validation or purchase. That's kind of what we see here, right? They're taking a legitimate sample. They're reverse engineering it to the point where they can swap out that C2 and then redeploying that. It really doesn't have anything to do with Absolute and LoJack vendor itself. It's, it's more along the lines of the attacker taking advantage of something that's already in existence. So I suppose it's uh, fair to say that we can expect uh, some updates coming from the LoJack folks themselves to, to probably take care of this. I do know that uh, last response that we had from them, that they were looking at internally investigating. Um, as far as I know, their posture is that none of their clients have been impacted. Um, so again, I can't speak to their internal processes. That'd be something we'd want to reach out to them for comment. Um, but yes, anytime we find any updates or if we find additional samples or additional C2s, um, we're keeping an open dialogue. Um, we want to make sure that we're we're transparent with them and that we're sharing any of our findings that's going to help them and any of their clients. Yeah, I'm wondering, just, just from a, a larger point of view, you know, we, we started out today talking about how this came to you all for, from a tip. I wonder if you could describe to me the, the sense of community there is among the researchers, those of you who are looking into these sorts of things, or uh, how many of these conversations happen in, you know, in back channels and in, in uh, Slack groups or things like that. Uh, you, you all do keep in touch with, with each other, yes? Yes. Uh, just from my perspective and being around in the field now for the past 10 years, it's, it's, there's a lot of people in the field, but it's a very small community, if that mm. makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so yes, a lot of us sit in, in trusted groups. Uh, we sit in chat rooms. We have mailing lists. Uh, there's a number of ways that we keep in touch, um, but we do. We share a lot of information back and forth, and often uh, we share those free of charge uh, because we want to help the entire community. Obviously, there's some things that you have to have close hold, right? You have to run a business, for instance. But when we can, we try to share as often as we can. Um, And with the NetScout Arbor side of the house, we don't monetize our our intel like this, right? So when we can, we try to blog them out publicly and then get those in front of as many people as we can to help protect them from the particular threat. Um, And anytime we come across threats like this, we're automatically feeding all those into our systems so that clients, you know, running any of our appliances are going to be protected. That's like our first line of business. Um, And then from there, we look at how can we share this back into the community? How can we bring awareness to this and help other people be protected as well? In your experience, uh, what would your advice be? I'm thinking about the person who's coming up through school or maybe considering a career change, and they think that this sort of research may be something that they're interested in. What are the the attributes that you see the successful people who are doing this kind of work have? Honestly, for me, it boils down to passion uh, and self-starting. I didn't receive any formal training when I got into this. It was more of a self-driven thing. Now, granted, I was in the Army for a while, so I did some intel, Um, But when it comes to reverse engineering, when it comes to the security aspect um, and looking at threats from a a reverse engineering or technical standpoint, um, for me, that was self-taught, self-driven. And I just had a passion about the field. I thought it was super interesting finding out what the attackers do, how the attacker thinks, um, what they're going to do with a particular binary and trying to figure that out. To me, it was self-satisfaction, right? And I know a lot of other people in the field, a lot of the successful people have that same passion, a drive to figure out what's going on and then 
feed that back into the community to make sure people are protected. So I think that's that's a, a key aspect that I look for in other security researchers, uh, not only from my team, but those that I work with as well. And from a hiring point of view, what what sort of work would you like to see? Is it? I'm thinking, you know, is this a situation mm-hmm. where uh, if someone has done that work on their own, if they're a, a self-starter, they might not necessarily need all, all of the certifications and, and the traditional education from your point of view? Uh, sure. And honestly, that's... Um, Certifications may play a role in a particular position, um, but it's not the end-all, be-all, right? A lot of times with when I'm looking at a, a particular resume or somebody for hire, uh, I don't necessarily hold certificates in high regard. Uh, instead, I look at who they are as a person, what they've done for the community. Do they have their own personal blog? What are they giving back? Are they in any of the trust groups? Do they contribute? Um, but then also I want to evaluate their technical skills, right? So if they've done this on their own, and they have some blogs that, to me, lends credence to the fact that, yes, they know how to do this. They know how to do it well and effectively. Um, there's also some internal things you could do to test that out, such as giving them uh, a particular sample of malware and saying, hey, reverse this, send me back a report, um, and then evaluate how they did. So there's a lot of things you can do there. But I like, uh, from my standpoint, is to evaluate what they've done for the community and what they've given back. Our thanks to Richard Hummel from Arbor Network's ACERT team for joining us. The research is titled, LoJack Becomes a Double Agent, and you can check it out on their website. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.